Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? You're not supposed to be so blind with patriotism that you can't face reality. Wrong is wrong, no matter who says it. Malcolm X. Glenn Block has this at the top of his LinkedIn page. Glenn has a wonderfully complex set of accomplishments and just as importantly, goals that he is committing his life to achieving. He holds an MBA from Seattle University Leadership Executive Program and is an expert in technology. He is an entrepreneur, a mentor, an advocate, and an accomplice for change. He has a 25-year history of leading teams in technology from conception to fruition. He's actively trying to bring diversity and inclusion into the tech world. Quote, it's not about equality, it's about equity, he says. Institutionalized racism, social and racial justice, as well as access, are just a few of the missions that he is passionate about challenging. He's here to talk with JD about all of this and more. Welcome, Glenn Block. Thank you, Susie. So and thank you, JD. Yeah, for sure. We were just laughing about how I've been stalking you a little while and very curious to have this conversation with you. So just again, I want to say it on air. Thank you so much for being willing to participate in the dialogue with us. I mean, it's it's an honor for me. Thank you for reaching out and for creating this space. I'm really happy to be here. So, you know, I really appreciate your voice, um, but I want to say right out, you're not an ally. You use your voice to elevate Black voices. That's more than allyship. I have a whole, and this is just from actually being around a lot of uh, and connecting with a lot of people Mm -hmm. of color and especially black women has changed my whole perspective on allyship. I like try not to even, like, I think allyship is good. People calling themselves allies, bad. Like I was at Microsoft, for example, and a leader, a female leader who I respect, we were having a discussion on diversity and inclusion, a big one. And she said, I'm an ally. And I just was like, I really, and it was because of what I've learned. There was a time when I probably would have been like, yeah, I'm an ally. But I think it's like the focus is not about achieving some title. It's about doing work. The title doesn't matter. And the title means nothing if you're not doing the work. And if you're doing the work and you have no title, there's no difference in terms of the impact that you're having. So I try, what can I do as a white cisgender male to better support people that come from marginalized backgrounds? I think in that sense, I think it's good, but it's just like the term's been so watered down. And so my friend Denise Branch, who does a lot of amazing anti-racism work, you know, she likes to use the term accomplice. And some people I know got better shape when I use that term. And, you know, because it often gets used in a like a criminal context, which is absolutely not what it means here. But I think it's also like this idea of like, I'm going to we're in this together. I'm going to like put my whole self in to be with you, to help you and to support you. So ally implies that you're helping me. 
And I truly feel like that's the incorrect positioning, which has had people feel like, well, all I have to do is be here and say the right things and I'm okay. And that's why I like, you know, an accomplice is fine, but I really like the idea of activism and abolition because that means everybody comes with some sort of tools to do the work. And you're not looking at me to support you to do what you have to do. And I heard you on one of the podcasts and I thought you were very patient with trying to explain all this to people. And I think white people need other white people to be very patient with them to explain all this. Because, you know, I'm too tired. That's well, you it's shouldn't just, it's have too much. To. <laughs> that's, that's the goal. So tell us about your life growing up in Long Island. What's your cultural ethnic makeup? Um, how did you learn about social injustice if you didn't then? Wow. When? I've not really talked about this before. So um, what I would say is like, I grew up around a lot of racism. And one of the things I've learned in my whole journey before just a slight tangent is that being racist is not about its institution, it's things we learn, it's things we have to unlearn. I think there is a notion of good and bad in the sense of, like I really do attach to what Ibram Kendi says in his book about how to be an anti-racist, which is like, you have to be fighting. But it's like people don't want to you know, like the easiest way to like get white people angry is just to call them white. The second one, tell them they're racist. Right. <laughs> I made a joke one day where I was like, I want to wear a shirt that says, like, I'm a racist and so are you. And it was like really about that idea of like owning like, yes, but I'm working like I'm trying to recognize it. So like when I grew up and my daughter got really upset to hear this, like my grandmother Polish Jews, they have this Yiddish, they have this language. And schwarze is a term, a derogatory term that is used for Black people. My grandmother, like when I was like three, would walk around and just be like, schwarze this, and the schwarze that, and the schwarze that. Like at the time, I never thought about it. But like when I grew up later, I was like, what effect is that having on a child who is hearing those things like you learn those things and you can't deny that that had an effect um my dad wore blackface in the 70s right i used to hear talk about like jigaboo like terms i don't use but around my family and we didn't consider ourselves racist right of course we didn't consider ourselves racist as I've learned to become a lot more knowledgeable and aware, I just look back on my life and see how many things were like, I would say, programming me mm-hmm. to look at the world in a very specific way. Like I grew up in Long Island in an area that was segregated. When I used to drive in certain neighborhoods, there were like black neighborhoods, I would lock the doors. And still to this day, it's like, well, why did I do that? Right. Because that's what I was taught. I was taught to fear mm-hmm. black people. You know, when the subway things, I mean, it was like all oh, the Bernie gets right, which were like white people were talking about those black people as animals. You know, people used to say that black criminals were animals. And it was just yeah, it was not good. <laughs> When did it take a turn for you? I mean, that's, like you said, deeply embedded in your upbringing. Yeah. What, what was the catalyst for the turn, the shift? I think it started actually when I became Muslim. Because when I became Muslim, I spent for the first time in my life a lot of time with African-American people. And not just African-American, Black folks from Nigeria, from other countries. But, you know, really, the African-American Muslim community in Long Island really welcomed me. And when I started to learn about Islam, I felt honestly more comfortable in mosques with African-Americans than a lot of the Arab and other mosques, because there was a lot of like, 
as Muslims, we believe that Islam is for everybody, but there was a lot of like more than racism, but there's just a lot of segregation between mosques and like the Arabs don't want to talk to like states and, you know, things have progressed quite a bit, but I really felt most comfortable when I was around the African-American community. And I, for the first time in my life, had more like friends that were black that I would hang out with, that I would go to the mosque with. But not only that, as part of my journey to becoming a Muslim, I learned about Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X. And reading Malcolm X's autobiography, honestly, was life-changing for me. What I think about flashing forward, because that was when I was like 18, 19, and I was like searching. The one thing that I think a lot about is like, for me, I didn't just wake yesterday and start caring about this stuff. It's been a gradual journey. But I think what I wasn't really looking at was the systemic problems that exist. And that has been a lot more recent. Like I always knew there were inequities, but not realizing just how much the system is stacked, you know, against Black people, particularly, of course, stacked against people of color as well, but stacked against Black people, how deep those institutions run. And Malcolm said a lot of that stuff, but I think in those days I was kind of young and just didn't really get it. Like, now I get it. And I just went and listened to his autobiography again after like 20 years. I listened to it on Audible. And it was so many things that I realized when I heard it then when I was 19, that just completely flew over my head. He was so ahead of his time. That's why he had to be killed. They could not deal with the depth of Malcolm X. And you and I could go on about that forever. But I want to highlight something that you said in one of your podcasts. I appreciate you sharing that vulnerability with us as well. You said in one of the podcasts, you know, you really tried to help this gentleman understand the difference between equity and equality. And I could see. Oh, yeah. My friend, I, I know what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Why do you think this is such a difficult concept for the privileged to grasp? Is it a case of, I don't know which is a safe place to be, or is there something that's really missing? It's really interesting because I think like to understand the concept of equity, you have to understand that there really is not a level playing field, right? It's not just simply about giving people the same. It's actually about understanding that there is a system and there are circumstances and it's like giving people the same may not actually be equity because of the injustices of the system. And I think what happens is that as a white person growing up in this country, equality is a term we knew and we're like, you know, we kind of like patting ourselves on the back that we're like fighting for equality. And I think it started, you know, a lot of it started actually first with women. And the more yes. I've learned, I know that was white men, <laughs> which, is, which is also very different. Interesting, whole other conversation. But I think it's like, we just have heard that term so many times. And when have we heard equity related to like stock and investment? So I think part of it is a mental shift. I think one of the things I've really focused a lot on the last couple of years is just recognizing my own privilege. And I can honestly say that up until the last, say, four to five years, I don't think I could really recognize it. I knew I had advantages and I could talk about it. I just didn't realize how deep privilege yeah. goes. And I think the concept of equity is very much also attached to privilege. Like people will say, you know, oh, I don't need to worry about that. Like we're all equal, right? That's a privilege right. statement. That's a, you see the world from one lens, so you can make that statement. Yes. Uh, there's equal opportunity. No, 
There's not. And so saying like it's available to everybody, that's equality. No, because like when a black person goes into a bank, for example, and tries to get like a mortgage, that's not the same as a white person. But from an equality perspective, like, oh, they both can do it. There's nothing. There's no signs anymore. You know, then sometimes if you're really talking with somebody who I don't want to talk to anymore, they'll quote MLK, right? They'll they'll drop a good MLK quote to, to show you how balanced everything is. I think that's great. I think that's a great explanation. You made it very user friendly. And I think part of it is convenient. I don't know. But I think when you put it that way, I, I'm hoping that's easier for people to grasp. That I, well think it, I think it is a frame of reference. Like when we were on that podcast, I don't think it's like a there was any like pushback to it. It was just unfamiliar. And I think it's becoming more and more familiar. I have more and more conversations with people that look like me or my color that understand what, or at least can talk about equity in this, in the context of how I was talking about. Also, I think I wasn't prepared and I kind of probably messed up my definition a little bit when I was describing it. I don't think you did. I don't think you did. Okay. I think that it's just, again, I wonder how long, you know, at a certain point it's acceptance. It's no longer trying to understand. It's just acceptance. And I think there's a resistance to the acceptance part and really this obsession with understanding. Well, just like there's that resistance to privilege and the two go hand in hand, right? Like if I accept that I have privilege, so first you get the defensiveness of like, no, I worked for what I got. It's like, nobody's saying that. They're saying is the things that you got, if somebody else who was black, for example, worked for the same thing, they wouldn't have gotten the same thing. Some people that just drives them crazy, right? But I think the other thing that just drives people crazy is this idea that like, I have to change. And this is another thing I always think about with privilege. Like, I don't think I could look myself in the mirror, but conceptually, if I wanted to like tomorrow, forget about all this and just like, I love the movie, The Matrix, um, the red pill and the blue pill, right? So I could just take the pill and forget this ever happened and just live my life. And the point is, like, a black person can't do that, but a white person technically could. If I, like, said, I'm just really tired of this racial stuff, it's causing me too much pain, goodbye. I technically could do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's privilege. Yeah. yeah. No, that's great. You've said it perfectly. I'm going to shift gears a little bit to something that happened today, and I want to get your response to it. So there was another no-knock raid today where Amir Locke was killed by the police. You know, we just went through this with Breonna Taylor. How does this happen again? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I didn't even know about this. So now I feel like I'm not paying attention enough to the news or it's not getting broadcasted here. Again, I think it speaks to the system. It speaks to a system that's broken. I mean, I have a very different opinion of police and law enforcement. I mean, I know I've known police and I believe like, you know, they talk to me and I feel like they have good intention and all of that. Of course, you know, road to hell is paved with good intent. But it's like, I think the system itself is broken. And when I read New Jim Crow, that really popped to me. When I read that book, that just like made it so clear about, you know, how the system is not just a bunch of accidents. It's like really intentional. The way the system has been set up, you know, the way police deal with like low income neighborhood, like all of that is like a very kind of constructed thing. And I truly believe that. And that's why it's not broken. It's fixed 
to function the way that it is. You know, we it's, have to it's, break. It's broken for those who see it as broken, but you're right. It's <laughs> exactly. like, it's, it's not like it was good and it suddenly became bad. It's like exactly. built from these foundational principles. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about this. I Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's, I, I just, it's, it's awful. And even when you say that, it's like, even if we have a moment, that's not changing anything. I know. Um, you yeah. know, we would like to think Breonna Taylor didn't die in vain. And then you have this, and there's no words. It's just heartbreaking. All right, I'm going to shift gears again. And I want to talk about some of the language that I know is used primarily in DEIJ trainings and people who are doing diversity work. You know, there's a lot of talk about bias. And that word mm-hmm. bothers me so much. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering, I feel like it dumbs down racism. I want to know yeah. what your thoughts are. Why do you think it I mean, it I is- like what Ibram Kendi said. He just called it like it is. He's like, I use one word, racism, right? Like, right. I don't use those other words because those other words are placating and pacifying Mm -hmm. and like it's kind of like not you and or it's like yeah it's bad but it's not like calling you a racist like yeah you Mm -hmm. did somebody so i think you know look a lot of what i believe and what i hear from others that are way smarter than me and that are actually like doing the work in a much deeper way is like look change is not going to happen if people are comfortable words like bias are like you know making people feel comfortable So I try not to use those words. It is interesting. Like I think when I logically think about the idea that somebody is making decisions and those decisions are skewed, but they're skewed because of racism, right? Right. It's like- It goes back to it. Yeah. Yeah. People don't like that word and they feel, you know, it's, I think that's a lot of what it is, is they don't like that word. And I think a lot of Black leaders and activists that are using that word or talking about Black racism, it just infuriates a lot of people. And that doesn't mean it's not correct. It's just, you're just like ruining my day. Like I was having a great day and now you're saying this, right? Right, right. Right. And, and, you know, I I appreciate that. I understand that there's you know, when dealing with a certain population, you have to figure out language that's user friendly. I'm just too old and too tired. Well, for do that. you or don't you? Right. I know. I think there's, I there's a split on that. Right. Which is like, yeah. is it my job to make you feel comfortable? I mean, a big thing Ryan. for me, like in my journey, I've made plenty of mistakes and I will. Right. And mm-hmm. I had one big thing that happened where I hurt somebody inadvertently. Right. Good intent. Did something without permission that. I learned a valuable lesson from it. It was a moment for me to realize that, hey, whether you have good intent or not, harm is harm. Mm. The fact that you're sorry doesn't change the pain or harm that you've inflicted. And like a lot of people, even when they get called out, they're like, oh, I didn't really intend that. But it's a matter you caused it. And owning that you're like causing that and like, what am I going to do to kind of stop that and change that, I think is just really important. Yeah, I love that you told him, you know, you said a couple of times that, you know, listening, listening, stop telling me what you intended to do. That's why when I teach, I don't talk about intention. Don't tell me what you intended to do. You know, explain to me the process of doing it so you can unlearn it. And that's why I think unlearning. Um, yeah, it's so yeah, important. You know, I, I think that was good that you just kept repeating listening. I think that's really important. I love that you talk about mentoring and it is an important way to use privilege. I think it's a responsible way to use privilege. How did you figure that out? Interesting. Well, somewhat accidental, I think. I mean, I had mentors that helped me. So as I was coming up my career, I had mentors that helped me. And so that showed me the value of mentoring. Mm -hmm. 
and I love helping people. And one of the things that my mentor said to me, which I say to all the people I mentor is like, pay it forward, right? Somebody help you, you need to help the next person. When I first started mentoring, I was working in the tech industry and this years ago, and I was very involved in the community. And I was starting to just become a lot more aware first of just the inequities in tech toward women. So then I started like mentoring more women initially was like white women. And then as I started to learn more, I just reached this point where I kind of fast forwarded and I was like, okay, the people that have it the hardest in technology are black women because, you know, it's doubly stacked against them. They're women, they're black. So then I started to shift more and more to like, okay, I want to like mentor black women. And then it's like, how do I approach that in a way that is authentic and that, you know, Hey, I'm a guy, so I don't want to be like creepy about it. Like it's been a journey. Um, and, but then on the other hand, it's like, I have maximum privilege. So like, if I can figure out a way to do it, it's like, I believe I can really have an impact because as being a white male, like I have just experienced navigating the system and I'm a huge networker. So if nothing else, I can like connect people But I've spent a lot of time just talking about things like salary negotiation, like knowing your worth, like how to navigate different kinds of situations. And it just kind of organically grew. But then, you know, one of the challenges I've had, too, is people have been like, you only want to mentor like black women. And I'm like, look, there's lots of places in the world where there's inequity. I said, but, you know, for me, I feel like this is where there's the least attention and where I feel like I can really make an impact. And it's been challenging because there's even been like organizations that I've mentored with, like things where I'm like, okay, I've actually like told them, I prefer for you to match me up with black women. And that sounds off. I've had to get used to discomfort, even as being like a hiring manager and being like, I want to bring more black people to my team. And it's like just having some of these conversations, but what's pushed me to have them is if I don't have them, it will never happen. So it's like just learning to be okay with that. (laughs) I'd love to offline talk to you about opportunities like that. Cause I, I think it's so important. You know, you clearly recognize that, you know, the tech industry is where equity could really happen in a big way. But it's really challenging to figure out how to do it so that it does make a difference. I mean, the despairing research that they've done is so glaring about the gap in technology. So kids don't even know it's an option unless they're gamers or young black girls don't know what could I have to do in the tech world. And I think it's criminal. So I'd love to talk about possibilities with you. So a great organization I'm just going to plug here is Tech Bridge Girls is an organization. Nicole uh, Puri Collins is an African-American woman. She's a friend of mine who runs that organization. They focus specifically on STEM access for girls living in low-income neighborhoods, where it's not a question of ability, it's access. Do they have access to the resources? And that's also a privileged conversation. Like me, I started coding when I was seven years old. Now, my family didn't get me into it. I just took to it. I went to a library and found a book on computer programming. Well, one question is like, as a white seven years old, that opened so many doors. And look, if I want to get like dig in like i found that book nobody like gave me that book but like it was in the library that i was going to but here even more so 
is that I started to read that book and I was fascinated by it. And my mom saw it. I was really into it. And I got sent to computer camp and I ended up getting a computer. For many, that's back then, that wasn't an option, right? So I read a lot of those um, experiences. But TechBridge Girls is doing fantastic okay, great. work. Good to Another know. thing I would say, honestly, even though they shouldn't have to do it, is a lot of Black women in technology have been banding together and basically like forming like these fronts and alliances that are bringing change. And that was kind of how I really got pulled into becoming more of an activist. Years ago, I live in Seattle and like years before some of the recent things that have happened, like with George Floyd, before the pandemic, a few years ago, I was working at DocuSign and at DocuSign, they had a ERG called Bold. And just something when I joined DocuSign, like one thing they did that was awesome is during the hiring, when you have like the onboarding, they had a whole yeah. presentation on like equity, inclusion. I didn't even know a lot of these words at that time, to be honest, and talking about the importance of inclusion and things like that. It had been building in me. And I got involved on that day. I heard about Bold, the ERG. And I'm like, okay, I'm joining here. Like, I'm going to go join Bold and made friends with a lot of Black people within the organization. And there were people that were supporters who were not Black who were in there. And then when I started to do that and get more involved, I just started to realize, like, I need to learn a lot more. At that time, I probably wasn't thinking of unlearned. I was like, I need to just learn a lot more and learn more about the struggles, you know, and I would hear them. I think I was privileged to just be in the room and listen to what people were doing within the organization and the things that they were caring about. And what was happening at the same time that I joined DocuSign, there were all these meetups that started to pop up in Seattle. One was Black Women Talk Tech. Another one was Future for Mm -hmm. Us. And it's just, I don't know, sometimes it's just timing and you're just like ready to change. And I had done all this work prior, public speaking. I was fortunate. I went all over the world, spoke at conferences on technology. And more and more over the previous years through the mentoring and everything, everything was shifting where I was like, I don't want to talk about technology anymore. I want to talk about change and how we do stuff. So suddenly, like the skills that I guess I had built in being able to like get out there and network in the tech community, like when I saw these things popping up, I'm like, I'm just going to go. I just went to one of these Future For Us events, and I think it was Minda Hartz was being hosted, who wrote the memo. Have you read the memo? No. Or heard of the memo? The memo is a fantastic book, specifically talking about the challenges that Black women face in corporate America and in technology, because she worked in tech. And I went into the room, and it was a real interesting moment, because honestly, I was like the only white guy in the room. And I just, you know, this was a chance to kind of like embrace discomfort. Like, Mm. should I even be here? Like, should I just leave? You know, like, and it felt very strange, but I just went and sat and listened to her story. And then I started just going to more and more of these kinds of events. And I'm a talker. I would try to just listen, just hearing the stories and almost feeling like honored that I could like be in the room where people were really sharing all the horrible experiences they've gone through. But that has been amazing. 
I think there's a lot of good that is happening that wasn't there at the time when I okay. started. There's still so much to do, but at least there's now like real movement. And it wasn't started by white people, but it was started by black people, started by women. But I think it's having an effect. You like, know, I think companies, there are companies. That it's are really good to hear you say that because, you know, as an African-American yeah. who lived and worked in white spaces, there's a sense of urgency. You know, I feel like, you know, how fast can this happen? Because the longer it takes, the less chance there is for equity to really happen, particularly in a country that doesn't recognize what equity really means. So what can you say to people about the hope you have for the future? I think that's really important for people to hear. So I don't want to sound, you know, also being being who I am and how I look, <laughs> it's a hard question to ask. I would well, say think- I'm hopeful that okay. change okay, has good. started. I'm okay, hopeful good. by Fair even enough. like I was at Microsoft for eight years. I left for six and a half. I came back and I was there for 18 months. And there were deep conversations happening on equity, on you know, leaders that were pushing, like we need to create an environment where even just the language, like we need to create environments where like everybody can bring their whole selves to work. And I was very impressed. Like one of the hardest things for me about leaving Microsoft recently was I saw so much momentum around trying to change the culture. And, you know, there's lots of problems. Don't get me wrong. I even gave an example. Like there's lots of problems. There's certainly performative allyship, but there's no denying that there's a wave that is pushing through Microsoft and other companies around bringing that change. And part of that is also bringing more people in. And that's the other thing, like bringing more people of color and and black folks into companies so that that's going to be something sustainable. And also not just looking at hiring, like really looking at the culture, like how do we create an environment where people are going to want to stay, not just doing the, you know, recruiting thing of like, hey, we're hiring black people. Exactly. So I'm encouraged. Well, see, see, you did have something to say about it. Don't be so reluctant. What you said was very important. And you said the best part was sustainability, which means more than just dropping people of color into positions and thinking that's equity. It's not. So sustainability is the key. And I knew you'd get there. I had faith in you. Sustainability is what matters. And I don't think things are going to change until, like if we talk about like corporate America, until organizations are actually changing. A good friend of mine, Dr. Kimia Dennis, she always talks about policy change. Because here's the thing too, it goes back to that whole conversation about harm. It'll be great if like everybody changes and they start doing things differently. But even if they don't, you still need to stop the harm. The only way you're going to stop the harm is by having policies and accountability. And there's, I think that's an area where there's a lot of work that needs to get done, but was encouraged at Microsoft that I saw it. I saw some of that happening. I saw polls, for example, where they were looking at the poll data and, you know, looking at what were they seeing as far as what were the messages that were coming back, how like people were feeling. There's a very large ERG at Microsoft, which I'm forgetting, which is all Black, African-American and supporters. And it's huge. I mean, it's like thousands of people that are in it. And Satya, you know, they talk to Satya and they talk about what problems are. So I think there are systems that are getting into place to counter the other systems that are in place. But And of course, you know, nobody has to play a violin for me. It's just when I think about how deep this is and back to the roots, 
it is overwhelming. I I try not to say that because I'm like, my overwhelming is nothing compared to what you feel from an overwhelming perspective. Yeah. But like I when you want to like bring change, but just looking at all the obstacles that are in the way, but then what motivates me to do it is like, well, if I don't do it, it's never going to change, right? So, right. and then I think the hard part is also like, am I willing to give up privilege? Or am I willing to use my privilege to put myself in a place where I'm going to be more vulnerable in order to get the change? And I think if you're not willing to do that, it's just not going to happen. So look, when clearly I'm being aware of the time because I know you have to go. I just want to say that clearly we could go on and on. And so I want you to promise to come back a year from now and let's have a similar conversation and see if your hope has happened, if it's come to fruition. Because I appreciate what you're doing in terms of elevating black voices, black women. I like that you've you know, made your focus specific because then it expands. So, and I love the way you explained it. I think it was great. I'd like to know where people, well, I already know how to find you clearly, but how can <laughs> others find you to see what, <laughs> Clearly, I know how to stalk you. <laughs> I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn.com. Is it Glenn Block, I believe. Yeah, Glenn Block, G-L-E-N-N-B-L-O-C-K. Um, Are you on any other social media? Can... I'm on Twitter, but I don't really okay. use it that much. So probably LinkedIn is the best place to find me. I also have a Medium blog, but you can find that link awesome. in my profile on LinkedIn. And actually, hopefully very soon, I'm going to have a good post around Black History Month. Uh, okay. with a very good friend, Denise Branch, who's doing mm -hmm. a lot of anti-racist work. And uh, I'm privileged to have a conversation with her. That we're Excellent. We'll look forward to it. And I look forward so. to having another conversation with you. You yeah. are awesome. Thank you so much. Well, you're all awesome. And thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm just really grateful to have this conversation and for you creating this space. You've both been amazing. And I would love to come Excellent. back in the future. Excellent. Take care. Have a great trip. Thank you. Thank you. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative.